Hello, this is Jill Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. Today, I'm speaking with Mirna Perez about the effect of COVID-19 on voting rights and voting access. Very important. Mirna Perez is a voting rights expert, author, and a lecturer at Columbia Law School. Mirna currently serves as the director of the Brennan Center's Voting Rights and Elections Program at NYU School of Law. Thank you for joining us today. So, Mirna, how's your spirit? <laughs> I want to start there. How's your spirit today? It changes moment to moment. Um, I will say that it, it dips when I um, hear more of the death that um, unfortunately seems to be way more present in all of our lives um, than I think we're used to. Um, but for the most part, I feel very, very lucky that I have a church family and that um, I have the ability to keep my family relatively safe, um, both uh, health-wise and financially, and I am grateful for the opportunities to uh, lean on my faith and remind myself that I was never really in charge and I was never really in control and that... um, God has a plan for all of us and that we need to be discerning and wise enough to hear the directions that he's calling us to do. Um, Because I think the hustle and bustle of most days make it really, really easy to do that quiet listening to what God is telling us. So um, I am mostly, mostly grateful. Um, And uh, I hope that others listening are finding the moments of peace and comfort that they need to be able to handle the horribly challenging aspects of what it means to be alive today at this moment in time. Now we're going to go to elections fairly quickly. That's your expertise, but you just said a word to us here that I want to pause and reflect on. Um, I know you're a leader. I watched you in operation. We leaders who try to do all this uh being in control or thinking we can control things or we want to control things or change things is sort of part of what we do and you just said a word there about that we're not finally uh in control we have to act in every way we can to make a difference over the things we care about but finally what it means to lean on our faith that's a word to me this morning so thank you for that uh people of faith know that we're not finally um, Dorothy Day, you know, probably you've heard this, used to say, um, uh, you should work as if everything depends on you and pray as if you know everything depends on God. And um, I think that's a good word. So thank you. <laughs> we all need words these days for each other. Um, now, many states, as you know, have postponed their primaries due to COVID-19. We're watching that all the time now. How do you think these changes will affect uh, turnout in those elections and the quality of those elections ultimately? There is no question that COVID-19 is going to cause an incredible disruption of 
the elections. And that is going to happen whether the primaries change or whether they don't change. There's some disruptions that happen because the elections moved and there's some disruptions that are going to happen if the elections don't move. Um, I think the important place to be at right now is looking at what we have learned from what is going wrong with whatever the decisions have been made, right? So we know we have some states that have moved their election and we have some states that didn't move the election. Um, And we as a country need to take this information and figure out how is it that we're going to make sure that elections go smoothly in November um, because we need to have an electoral process that people have faith in and that people can be confident enough. And these glitches that are happening now do a lot to undermine public trust. And the vote is how we resolve our political differences, elections, or how we as a country say what direction our country should be going in. And every election should be run in a way that whether or not your candidate wins or loses, you can feel like it was fair and that it worked the way that it was supposed to be. Now, cutting to the core of the problem that you work on every day, and a number of us are working with you, trying to partner with with you on this, Um, you know, voter suppression, um, concrete, direct efforts to prevent uh, vulnerable populations, minority populations, uh, people being suppressed because of the color of their skin. This is real. And we know that there are people who want to steal this election uh, or prevent people from voting. That's so how does, how does all this with this virus that was already going on, as you know, better than anyone already going on. So how does this make all that worse or more dangerous? Um, that's the overview here that we have to get in our minds that the election itself, democracy itself is really at stake here. I mean, how would you, how do you, how do you want to get that across to people so they really understand it? What we need to be really vigilant against is the prospect that some people will exploit this current crisis to, which, which is a very of the now moment into something that is not of the now. It is something that has um, plagued our country since the beginning of its formation, which is decisions getting made as to who should participate and who can't, and actions taken to try and thwart those who are currently on the margins um, from having a full and equal voice in the governing of our country. And in the kind of unexpected and unplanned changes that are going to need to be made, are there going to be opportunities for folks to exploit that, that underlying ugliness of trying to suppress the vote? And I think some of the ways we can guard against that is by being uh, able to identify it when it's happening and being able to know the difference between a, something that went wrong because of an administrative snafu and what was being done with the hopes of cutting some people out. Um, there's going to be some disagreements, just disagreements as to what the right thing to do is in particular scenarios and having a clear answer for how that gets decided, how we move on from it, and how we make whatever decision happens not having a, um, have unintended consequences, I think is really important. 
Um, and I think we fundamentally need to go back to basics and just reinforce the idea that our right to vote is fundamental, that our country is strongest when it hears from all of us, and that every eligible American should be able to cast a ballot that counts. Those are very American ideals. I think this is what many Americans think. I think there are some politicians that may have different viewpoints, but we need to not be in a position where we are letting them change the rules of the game just so that they can decide who can participate and who can't. Now, you and I are also people of faith. And so for us, this isn't just a a citizenship issue or a political issue. It's theological. So really, uh, when you try to take away the vote of someone because of the color of their skin, uh, this is an assault on Imago Dei, the image of God. This is an image of God issue underneath all of the important issues of citizenship. So theologically, this is crucial for us and not just a political cause we should get involved in, right? Um, I, I very much believe that we are honoring godly principles when we decide that every American has the inherent dignity as being a child of God, as being in the image of God, to be able to have a voice and to be able to participate and to be able to um, say their piece about what direction the country should go in and electing leaders who get to make very decisions about the most intimate aspects of our lives, um, ranging from what kind of schools our kids go to, to the quality of the air we breathe to the cleanliness of the food we put in our bodies. So you just said very importantly, this was all going on before this, this voter suppression threat in reality. And so summarize for people and you're a good person to do, do this. What are all the ways it's already going on? It was already going on, has been going on practically that people's votes are are suppressed or people are disenfranchised? And then how is this uh, coronavirus making that worse? I think the coronavirus is laying bare those places of vulnerability that we have always had. And this is not just in the voting context, but I'm going to focus on the voting context. Our country needs to do more to protect our elections in the event of an unexpected emergency. This year, it's the coronavirus. Next year, it could be a hurricane or a tornado. The year after, it could be Russian cyber criminals attacking our technological infrastructure. Elections are too important to this country for us not to have the resiliency to be able to withstand all sorts of different kinds of threats. And my hope is that when we're on the other side of this crisis, we take what we've learned and give election administrators the resources they need to be able to do the planning to make sure that we know what we're supposed to do in the face of a bunch of different kinds of threats. Where and how people vote become very important here. Now, as you know well, many people, for, for many people, voting in person on election day is a political act and a statement that holds deep meaning, especially for people and communities that have had to fight for their right to, to vote. And for people who have who need language assistance, who are visually impaired, who don't have access to the U.S. post office, 
uh, people living on reservations, voting in person is key. And you often hear from uh, Barbara William Skinner, my dear, dear friend, said yesterday in a meeting that you and I are both in, uh, fighting for the vote was a religious and a, a spiritual act and uh, for Black people. And going to the polls is still that. It's still a statement of faith uh, in defiance of oppression. I'm here. Uh, people paid for this, and I'm here to vote today. So at the same time, um, uh, that there, there are now threats to all of that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and voting by mail may be easier for people who are at greater risk for COVID-19 and those who are disabled and so on. So this whole where we vote and how we vote is is a critical question now, as you look over the landscape here how do you see that where and how we vote and the need perhaps for uh different ways of voting being uh easy and safe how do you see all that where and how we vote how's that um now? i think the focus on how we lift each other up i think is really important and i think that the changes that are that the coronavirus has necessitated on our elections are also going to have ripple effects in our communities and how we do organizing. How are we going to make sure that we're not leaving out those on the other side of the digital divide? How are we not going to leave out those members of our churches who um, get information because of fellowship hour or uh, from the pulpit or through phone trees? And one way that I'm concerned about, about people being left out, is having plans that presume too many people, or presume that what works for one community is going to work for another community. And I'll be very specific about that. Um, You know, there's a lot of a call for vote-by-mail access, and I very much believe that vote-by-mail is an essential, it is a critical part of the solution to how we get through the coronavirus and still conduct our elections. But the reality is, is that there are going to be some members of our community that do not have reliable mail. There are going to be some members of our community that didn't hear the rules about when you had to apply and under what time and aren't going to get their ballot. Um, There are going to be some members of our community that know that, uh, that in many places, uh, mail ballots by people of color tend to get rejected at higher rates, and all those folks are going to want to be able to vote in person. And so part of all of us is figuring out how we can do that, how we can make sure that people have options and that uh, people are able to pick what makes the most sense for them and their family in terms of how they vote. And I just get really um, frustrated when I hear about options constricting, because in a time of crisis, we need to account for the fact that people are going to be impacted differently, and we need to give voters more options, not limit their options. We need to have more healthy and safe ways in which people can participate and not instead just presume that one method works for everybody. So there was a recent high-profile controversy in Wisconsin because Uh, there was a political dispute as to whether or not the election should, or the primary election specifically, should be um, uh, moved or extended. And it went, it made its way through the courts and the 
very late at night, the day before uh, the election was scheduled to go forward, uh, the Supreme Court weighed in and concluded that it was not appropriate to uh, extend certain deadlines. And so people in Wisconsin were going to the polls if they had not already um, cast an absentee ballot that they felt confident um, would make the deadlines. And the pictures are very stark for folks because um, on one it on one hand um, you see things that you think are like ridiculous sites where people are trying to do makeshift PPEs and trying to cover themselves from head to toe. And one reaction would be like, "Have we come to this? This is ridiculous. Why are we as a country having to go through this right now?" Um, another reaction is that people were really persevering. And that their election, the election really mattered to them and the right to vote really mattered to them. And I think we can both be outraged and extraordinarily proud. And I think we should be. And I think we should um, be grateful for the peer perseverance and commitment from some and be really, really frustrated at all of the institutions of power that force them to take that to make that choice. So you're arguing for both in-person voting and voting by mail and every other option. How do we safely conduct in-person voting in November? And what are the steps we need to take now to make that happen? Um, well, that's, that's a great question. And I do uh, want to be very obvious about the fact that I am not a public health professional and that we're learning new things every day about this virus. Um, and no one can tell you with confidence uh, right now what would be the best thing to do in November, but there are certain things that we need to be able to plan for because they're likely to be true in November. So, uh, for example, things like making sure that polling places are set up in a way that allow people to be a sufficient distance away from each other, making sure that polling places have extra vigilant sanitization options where uh, machines can be cleaned after every voter where election workers have PPEs, people aren't trying to cram through the same door at the same time, where when people are waiting in line that they can wait comfortably longer because it's going to take longer if we're going to be undertaking all of these health measures and making sure that folks have a way to do that that's six feet away from each other. Um, hopefully by November, we'll learn more and we'll be able to build that in, but there needs to be some advanced thinking about what we can do, where the polling place is going to be, you know, how are they going to be set up so that people don't have to be within six feet of each other. And I am hearing a decent amount of creativity, which is encouraging me. Things like, you know, Lysol wipes being available to every voter as they walk in so they can wipe down the machine before they have to press it. Uh, like voters and election workers talking through plexiglass when there's questions. Um, people using the phone to ask election workers in the same site so they don't have to get close enough to listen and talk to them. Um, I've seen voters in line using masks. You know, all of these things are things that need to be under consideration and that need to be planned for. But, but most importantly, we need to be dynamic and responsive because this uh, virus is unlike anything many of us have ever seen before. And we're learning more about how to keep us safe from it on a, on a daily basis. And we cannot presume that what we know now is what we are going to know in November, but we can presume that we need to plan 
for the fact that there are going to need to be a lot of changes and that we're going to have to take extra measures and we can estimate what some of those measures would look like and start um, putting the procurement and the thinking in advance to put that in. Hmm. So at an alleged White House briefing on the coronavirus, uh, I heard the president, President Trump, say this about voting and it concerned me and I'd like you to respond to it. He said, well, mail voting, I'm against that. It's all, it's full of fraud. It doesn't work. I want in-person voting and I want every American to have a voter ID. Voter IDs are critical. So mail voting is fraudulent, he said. There's no evidence for that, but that's what he said. And we need IDs at the, at the polling place. Now that's it. Unpack that for us. Tell people what you're what you hear in that and what that means for our concerns. I think what I would say to that is we need to actually look at the experiences of the state. Many, many, many people in this country already vote through a vote-by-mail system. Um, and many states can very easily lean on their vote-by-mail practices. And I'll take a, I'll take a concrete example. A lot of states say that if you have a physical limitation or a health limitation uh, precluding you from going to the the polls, you're able to cast a a mail voting ballot or an absentee ballot. Um, And you have some boards of elections saying very plainly, if you're worried about the coronavirus, you meet that criteria, right? That doesn't require like a dramatic change. That doesn't require a big shift in understanding. There are other states for whom that might be a, a uh, an, an option not as easily accessed. But I think what has been the most concerning to me about what I'm hearing at all levels of government is a lack of connection to what is actually happening in the real world. In the real world, in our country, not in Washington, people are voting by mail. And people have been voting by mail for quite a while. In the real world, uh, not in Washington, people are getting sick and people are living under shelter at home orders. And, uh, you know, it is very confusing to know what you're supposed to do when you don't have a vote by mail option in front of you and you've been told that you need to stay at home. You know, the real world is that we're all trying to flatten the curve. And that means assessing your own personal risk. And it means um, assessing your your propensity or likelihood of putting others at risk. And do we really want the doctor who is spending all day, you know, trying to save lives against the coronavirus and then going home um, and self-quarantining because they don't want to get their family sick? Do we want to tell that particular person that they have to go and wait in line um, and talk to who knows how many people, uh, interact with who knows how many people when they're trying to vote? Um, And so I think what we need a marrying of is what is actually happening now because of the coronavirus, what was happening beforehand. And when you do that, it is very, very clear that vote by mail is one of the things that need to be on the table as a way for people to, to be able to vote. I think it's inescapable. And to suggest that people are not using vote by mail and they weren't using vote by mail is just patently wrong. What we're talking about is scale. Like the, the honest question is, if we're talking about scale and scope, you know, how many people should be using it under what circumstances? 
And those questions need to get asked in the face of us having a pandemic where everybody is safer if they stay closer to home. Is there any uh, evidence of massive fraud with voting by mail, which the president has now said there is? The massive and system, I mean, there's not massive or systematic fraud uh, anywhere in our election system. Um, are there places that could be shored up because some miscreant could exploit? Um, maybe. It depends upon the state. Um, but there are also plenty of states that have very, very smart practices that um, keep their election system and their vote-by-mail system secure. Um, there are a number of states that already conduct their elections primarily by mail, and they have a number of protocols ranging from ballot tracking um, from the post office to uh, smart, robust ways of collect of, uh, of uh, comparing signature verifications to uh, having very clean voter rolls, so ballots go out to people that are known to the election office. Um, the the challenge of how to do this is one of imagination and perseverance, not possibility, because it has already been proven to be possible. What, do you, what are your concerns when you hear politicians insist so much on voter ID, voter ID, voter ID? What's What do you hear? What are the concerns you have when you hear that being the primary emphasis? My concern is that uh, between 8 and 12% of Americans do not have the kind of photo ID that is often required by these um, strict photo identification requirements. And because motor vehicles offices are closed and uh, many offices that issue copies of birth certificates and the like are also closed, people couldn't get them if they don't have them now. So you have the group of people that don't have them. You have the group of people who don't have them and couldn't get them. Um, and you have the group of people who don't have them and don't know that they need them. So I think all this together means um, we need to have mechanisms that allow people to demonstrate that they are who they say they are without imposing requirements um, that are not going to work for too many Americans. There was a North Carolina court decision that you're familiar with that said, I mean, the language was, uh, it was a rejection of new North Carolina voting laws or voter ID requirements. And it said in the language that this, that these changes, new regulations were surgically precisely aimed uh, at black voters, at people of color in the, that was the language of the court. Um, uh, that was striking, I thought, in clarifying how these new, all these new in many states uh, voter requirements uh, do seem like there's specifically, it said precisely aimed at voters of color. Um, I think much of the restrictive legislation that we see that put barriers in front of the ballot box are targeted toward Americans who have not always been welcomed into our political process. And I think you see a lot of these more restrictive efforts in conjunction with a anxiety about changing demographics and about people concerned about the browning of America and the loss of whatever they have right now. 
I mean, I, one of, uh, one of, uh, uh, the professors at, uh, at the Kennedy school, you know, is, is very famous for noting that people don't fear change. They fear loss. And so, um, when you have people that are worried about losing their station in life, losing their political power, losing their, you know, their, uh, political job security, like the politicians that, that want to keep their jobs, you start seeing a reaction that tries to make choices about who can participate and who can't. And I think the country is poorer for it. I think we function best when we are able to have the expertise and experience of all Americans um, be included in the really important decisions of the day. Now, uh, to make the necessary updates to our election systems and practices, we need funding and preparation now. I just signed a letter last night that came to me, but it was Faith Leaders uh, letter to all the leaders of the House and Senate saying that we need funding now in, in this new, uh, this next stimulus bill to do that those changes now in our electoral system to make elections free and fair and safe. Could you outline your dream timeline? If you were to get all the wins you and your organization are fighting for, uh, what would that look like now? Um, Well, the first thing we would get is a lot of money in the hands of election administrators and very, very quickly. Um, The changes we're asking them to make in some instances will be technological in nature. Um, Some of them will require a great deal of public education. And because for many voters, this will be a uh, new or different experience, and it may be one time, right? Like these changes we're talking about may be just an emergency basis for for right now. Um, That's going to require a really smart and strategic public education effort. Um, I also think that we would get um, politicians in one voice to say out loud, the right to vote is fundamental. Every eligible American should be able to cast a ballot that'll count and that all Americans are welcome in our democracy. And, um, I think, uh, we'd also see people getting behind different kinds of solutions that promote access to the ballot box. So that starts from uh, the registration process and moves to uh, people's experiences on Election Day. And that's going to necessarily include things like vote-by-mail options, in-person polling place options. Um, And we need to be creative and responsive to the the things that are popping up unexpectedly that we hadn't predicted. And there needs to be some resources left over, um, both in terms of planning and people power and money, to be able to rise to those challenges. I mean, what it basically comes down to, Jim, is that this is too important for it not to be a huge priority, um, where Americans of all walks of life need to come together and we need to tell our politicians we believe in our democracy. We believe in each other. Um, we care about our fundamental right to vote, and we expect you to care about it too. 
So stop your fighting and get to work <laughs> and figure out how you're going to get this done. So public education, you said, is, is crucial here. And you're so right about that. Um, so the Brennan Center is offering terrific resources on there. Could you just give a sense of what you think our public education on this needs to be? Uh, what do we want to educate Americans about? And what does the Brennan Center offer in particular to help us do that? The public education needs to be accurate, it needs to be trusted, it needs to be culturally competent, um, and it needs to be in language. Um, it needs to be uh, multimodal and that we cannot just depend on, on digital sources. We need trusted voices and people who are able to communicate effectively um, with folks who don't spend all their time sitting in front of a computer. Um, and uh, are rightfully going to be skeptical of something that comes across the email transom, right? We need, um, in, in a lot of ways, this is a voter by voter, community by community, church by church organizing effort where we can look out for each other and make sure that we have the, we all have the information that we need in order um, to be able to know where and how we're supposed to be voting. Um, and a way of making sure that nobody's getting left behind. The Brennan Center is offering resources. Could you tell us what you're offering in particular and how people can get it? Sure. Um, and it seems like we're, we're putting out something regularly. Like right now we have um, a plan that advocates can use if they want to be um, uh, trying to figure out what they need to be pushing their election administrators to be able to do. We have a preparedness chart where we uh, note what, um, what big things is your state missing um, uh, that would allow there to be a lot of risk diversification in the election process. Um, we have estimates on how much some of these measures are going to cost. Uh, we have explainers for people about, um, you know, why we still need polling places and, and there's more to come. Um, there's a lot of different information as, as issues are popping up. We're trying to put together very public facing resources that folks can go and educate themselves on. Um, so I encourage people to go to www.brennancenter.org. Say that again. <laughs> Write this down. Now I love what you say about the education has to take place in, uh, in, in study groups or in small groups and pulpits and coffee, coffee uh, conversations, and you're an ed educator, a professor. So uh, people who are, let's do some ed education right now, people who are in coffee groups and so on, what are the, you know, the three points or four points that you want to say, make sure we communicate this, one, two, three. What are those critical points um, that you want conveyed? Uh, in those okay, so I guess, I guess, I guess the point number one would be make sure you vote. Um, uh, if you're not happy with the way things are going right now, uh, the ballot box is an effective way to uh, voice that. And if you are, the ballot box is also an effective way to voice that. Um, number two is look out for those members of your family and community that cannot rely on social media email the internet for getting their information because there are um, the digital divide is real and uh, we cannot let those members of our community 
be left behind. Uh, and the third is to not lose faith that you have some power in this. Your vote matters. Um, if it didn't matter, you wouldn't have so many people trying to thwart you from voting. Um, don't let them win. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe finally to talk about, I see some signs of hope out there. Like we have this thing we're doing at Sojourners called Lawyers and Collars, trying to put clergy together with lawyers in polling places, but even before that with secretaries of state and so on, and we're getting a tremendous response from people who are clergy or lawyers and churches who, who want to be uh, work together to make these things happen. So it's lawyers and collars and people are, are signing up. What are the signs of hope that you see? I see conversations like this year and many of them around the country uh, that this crisis, this problem is, is creating a response to it, uh, both uh, in the uh, society and even in the churches. I guess what I would say is that I am excited that folks are thinking about something that is happening in November. Um, in spite of the crisis, in spite of the disruption, in spite of the death, people are hopeful that we're going to be around in November and that um, we're still going to, we're still going to be in a place where um, elections matter and that the direction of the country matters. Um, and, uh, and they want to make sure that the election goes off smoothly. And, and I think if you are, if you've got the imagination to be worrying about something that is happening in November, then that to me is just proof positive of hope. That's a great place to end. Is there anything, Mary, that you'd like, anything else you'd like to say to this issue that you haven't said? You've been terrific here. I guess I would just say that um, this kind of crisis that is before us is one that I think really requires um, the larger church to, to, to step into the breach, um, you know, to be the minders of the gap, to... Um, fill in for the spaces where many of our brothers and sisters are not welcome um, because of some really ugly parts of human personality, some very sinful parts of human personality. And that my hope is that when this is all over, the church can look back at what we did and say, you know, we're proud of the contributions we made. We were part of the solution and we took care of our flock. That sounds like <laughs> an altar call for me to the church's being mindful of the gap uh, where people for all kinds of ugly reasons are trying to prevent yeah, I mean, fellow citizens Yeah, it's from one of voting. my, my so, favorite passages from Isaiah, uh, to be stepping into the breach. And it's something that I try really hard to remind her. Quote that passage for us. The, 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 tell us well, what that uh, passage I'm, comes uh, I, I don't like to talk the Bible with people who are actually professionals at this, but there's the passage <laughs> that um, that we often read around Ash Wednesday about not um, not being very showy about the ways in which we observe our faith, but actually going into the places where others are not. And and stepping into the breach and being the bridge for what God God wants us to do. I know a lot of people focus on Matthew um, and who we are called to remember, and I think that that's true. But I think as we're remembering who we are called to remember, we need to make sure that we are doing God's work with our hands. 
and that we are doing our part in bringing his kingdom to earth and caring for others because it's as we care for others that we serve him best. So Isaiah 58, your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall rise up, I'm sorry, Isaiah 58, verse 12 here, your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. That's a wonderful passage here to bring bring us to the end of this. Thank you for joining us. Okay, thank you so much for having me. God bless you. To hear more from Myrna, follow her on Twitter at Myrna underscore Perez underscore. Myrna underscore Perez underscore. For news, resources, and reflections about our current public health crisis, visit sojo.net slash coronavirus. Also look at sojo.net for lawyers and callers and how you can be a part of this work to protect our elections and make them fair and free and safe. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with your friends and family and even enemies, as Jesus calls us, to love them too. And what better way to love someone than to give them a podcast that you like? We're available on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever you listen to your podcasts. And after you listen, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And follow me, if you'd like, on Twitter at Jim Wallace. This is Jim Wallace for the soul of the nation. God bless you.